Support for this podcast comes from Canva. When you look good, you feel good. But when your presentations look great, it can feel like you're walking on a cloud. You can design stunning work presentations, docs, whiteboards, and videos with Canva. Start with a designer-made template. Use it as a springboard for your design. Add images, graphics, charts, and more from Canva's massive media library. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Scott, what do you think it takes to build a billion-dollar company? A SPAC? Um, no. Um, okay. Well, that's, that's a loaded question. Someone with a vision, someone with incredible grit, determination, perseverance. It's typically reverse-engineered to someone who has an irrational passion for something, surrounds him or herself with really talented people has an ability to articulate that vision such that they can attract the right human and financial capital. And then it's all about execution and, quite frankly, timing. Welcome to First Time Founders. I'm Ed Elson. You might remember back in 2021 when a giant container ship got stuck in the Suez Canal or when lockdowns forced shipping companies to delay their schedules, sending consumer prices through the roof. Over the past three years, the supply chain has become a big theme in business. Specifically, we've all woken up to the fact that it's a lot more vulnerable than we once thought. Now, some of this was a COVID anomaly, but much of it was also structural. Supply chain management is a notoriously antiquated business. It's still heavily reliant on physical paperwork and traditional record keeping, which results in poor data quality and low efficiency. In other words, the stage is set for a disruptor. That's why I'm happy to introduce our next guest, Ryan Peterson, who is the foremost disruptor in the space. In 2013, Ryan founded Flexport, a supply chain management and freight forwarding platform. His thesis was simple, modernize trade with technology. And it worked. By 2021, the company was generating more than $3 billion in revenue. And the following year, the company was valued at $8 billion. You may have seen him on the cover of Forbes, Or you may have seen his viral tweets pulling back the curtain on the black box that is the supply chain industry. Today, we're going to discuss all of it. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So freight forwarding is kind of an obscure category, and I'm sure many of our listeners have never heard of it. So let's just start with a brief explanation of what Flexport is. Yeah, totally. So, um, you know, it's a little obscure, but you have to have to kind of just look around yourself and go, where did, where did all this stuff come from? Uh, how did they get here? And, uh, you know, huge, huge amounts of goods are made internationally and shipped internationally. In fact, um, I think I read recently global trade is 47% of global GDP. So, I mean, it's almost half of everything gets shipped around the world in some format, some form. Um, and so the, the, the challenge fundamentally what freight forwarding is, is that art and now science of getting that cargo moved from wherever it needs to be to wherever it's ending up. And why you need this layer uh, that we call forwarding is because, you know, the ships only go from port to port or the planes go from airport to airport, 
but the cargo needs from to go from door to door. And so we're the, sort of the coordinating layer of how do you coordinate the order actually going from a from a company to its vendors, placing a purchase order to turning that into goods. Well, that's manufacturing, of course. But then once the goods are ready, the manufacturing company needs to come on and tell tell the forwarder, okay, these goods are ready. Come pick them up, book it on a plane or a ship, clear it out of customs, clear it into customs in the other country and get it delivered. So there's a, you know, on a, on a typical transaction door to door, we tend to see 15 or more companies that do something. Plus the government, um, you know, multiple governments are involved, a bank, an insurance company. There's a, there's a lot of complex coordination that needs to happen. I often joke with our with our customers that it should be called freight email forwarding because <laughs> there's so many different people involved. In um, and what, what Flexport does differently, I think, than everybody else in this industry is we, we try to bring structured data to this process, connect people through software, whether that's actually software to talking to software as much as possible through APIs um, and through a legacy technology called EDI, which is really predominant in this industry, but also a lot of humans, like how do you build great web interfaces, mobile interfaces to allow the people to communicate and allow the data to travel in parallel to those goods um, as they travel around the world. So do you think it's fair to call it like a, you're the middleman, you're the software middleman in global trade, basically? Yeah, I think so. Um, now, you know, I think there's two kinds of middlemen in the world. There's some that just buy low and sell high and they don't add a lot of value and they give middlemen a bad name. And there's other kinds of middlemen middle that like coordinate complexity and simplify the world and allow you not to have to think about, about all of that. You know, a customer comes to Flexport, they don't need to worry about the 15 different vendors, uh, subcontractors, trucking companies, warehouses, airlines. Hopefully, you know, they have to worry a little bit about customs, but we try to make that really easy for them, make compliance really kind of like built compliance as a service, build that in. So yeah, the, we're okay with being called a middleman as long as you realize, hey, there is a role for middlemen to add, to add a lot of value in this world. So the title of this program is First Time Founders, but I should recognize up front that Flexport was actually not your first company, so we're slightly cheating here. Uh, back in 2006, you and your brother started another logistics shipping company called Import Genius. So take us back to the very beginning. Why did you decide to get into shipping of all spaces. Yeah, actually, um, Import Import Genius is a company that sells data about imports and exports, about shipping. So we we came at it from that perspective. Um, before that, we started a business um, importing products, mostly motorsports products, off-road vehicles, dirt bikes, ATVs, and dune buggies. Actually, my brother and Michael started that business. I was an employee. Even in the early 2000s, we had built software that lets you automate the outbound trucking piece. So like when our, our we had these motorcycles uh, that we would sell and so we'd ship them out and- Sorry, can I just enter, how, how why motorcycles? How did, how was that, how did you guys land on that? Well, we did a lot of different stuff. Motorcycles kind of our best seller. We, we were the first dealer in the United States for Geely, which is the Chinese car company that bought Volvo. Um, so we had found some good factories overseas. We built um, kind of e-commerce sites to sell this stuff. And as I was saying, we, we we automated a lot of the outbound trucking. Like even in the early 2000s, we could get rates from less than truckload providers, print the bill of lading, place a booking, have a truck show up and ship it out. And we tried to build similar types of systems on the inbound piece. And it was just like really hopeless. So we felt like the freight forwarding 
was a very frustrating industry to work with. One was the lack of tech, but like kind of, that was 20 years ago. Most people were bad at tech back then, but, um, but even like getting service out of the forwarding industry, it seemed like they were, George Bernard Shaw says, every profession is a conspiracy against the laity. And it seemed like freight, freight forwarding is just a poster child for that. Like, come on, like, like a lot of code words and acronyms and Viking English. You, you even heard me say it, bill of lading. Bill of lading, I was going to ask. It should be bill of loading. It should be loading. We're loading cargo, like not lading. That's, that's old English. What was your background before that? Because I still, that's, it's, it's a strange business to go into. Um, I assume it was your brother who decided to get into it. But, you know, did you always know you were going to be an entrepreneur? Kind of, yeah. My, both my parents are entrepreneurs. My older brother's an entrepreneur. Um, so it seemed kind of natural. But I started working for my brother. He's a, he's the a real entrepreneur of the family. And I uh, kind of learned from, learned from him. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I don't have a, my background's entrepreneurship. Um, learning basically was what that means. Try to learn as fast, learn faster than everybody else. Uh, I had a job in high school. I made pizza at Domino's. But other than that, I basically have just been building companies my whole life. So then in, in 2013, I think you were in the middle of Import Genius, but that's when you went to Y Combinator with this TurboTax for customs paperwork idea called Flexport. Can you take us through the original pitch for the company? Yeah, you know what? Actually, it's pretty interesting. It's on it's on YouTube. I did a pitch with Sam Altman, OpenAI founder, who was um, at Y Combinator at the time, and Paul Graham. Uh, and if you if you search like Ryan Peterson, Sam Altman, Paul Graham, something like that, you'll see my original pitch. Flexport, we're the first licensed U.S. customs brokerage built around a modern web application. Customs broker. Yeah, we well, I did it on stage at their event called Startup School. I got lucky to be uh, selected to go present it on stage, and it was sort of that. It was kind of turbo tax for customs, not doing freight. That we actually added that later, a year or two later, we started in customs because that's where. Well, that's where the compliance takes place. This is where the data lives, like fundamentally. And customs has even gotten much more important with all the tariffs that uh, the Trump administration and Biden administration have carried on. You know, but it was already a problem, like a lot of paperwork. I was experienced in importing uh, motorcycles, which is heavily regulated, as you can imagine, Department of Transportation, EPA, some state governments, plus customs and border protection. So yeah, that was the original pitch. Like, let's make it easy for people to import stuff, show them how it works, kind of use the internet, use software, like a little wizard like TurboTax would do. It is taxes ultimately, right? Customs are taxes. So the TurboTax analogy is pretty good. TurboTax is much more automated be because global logistics requires people. And so we always knew you'd, we would pair you up with almost, it's like TurboTax plus your accountant kind of thing, right? Like we'd pair you up with a with a customs broker and now a freight forwarding expert operations team that's going to make this whole thing easy for you. Hold your hand every step of the way. So let's fast forward, you know, five years to 2019, at which point, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm pretty sure you were generating around a half a billion dollars in revenue. Zero to half a billion in five, six years. I don't think even Zuckerberg can say that. What were some of the key decisions that you made that enabled you to reach that level of scale? Probably the, the most important decision for scaling the business has been our org structure, um, where we're built like a team of teams and kind of like, we call them squads, but uh, it's a customer, it's a cross-functional team that serves the customer. So that's customs, sales team, kind of account management, operations people that are coordinating freight. And that cross-functional team gets to kind of be like a little business unit and grow itself. Um, and I, I actually thought about ca calling this a cell, you know, like in the biological metaphor, like it as as it gets as it gets too much business, it can split and keep growing. Um, I didn't. We we call them squads instead because uh, 
cell can also be a prison cell and you don't really want your employees thinking <laughs> thinking of themselves in that fashion but uh but that that team <laughs> yeah. um really leads to you to have like very high quality customer experience even you know you don't get like this call center uh that you might get calling you know like a big company we we want to make like hey this is your team they're here to take care of you and that that's made the business quite scalable and it's also like kind of it's made it less tops down more like bottoms up culturally where you can kind of serve that customer and the customer's the boss and i don't have to tell everyone what to do because the customer's telling you what they need you to do and people are able to kind of it's a bit like an immune system right it's just like rapidly solve a problem rather the nervous system like you know you wait for instructions from the brain before you act and an immune system immune system there's no centralized control it's like just it sees a virus and it attacks it it sort of reminds me of bezos customer obsession ethos but is that, would you say that that's your point of differentiation in the space is, you know, you value the customer where others don't? We, we like to think that, you know, people, the, the narrative, the brand around Flexboard and what brings people in is our technology. And it's about user experience, visibility, control, like the data traveling in parallel to the goods um, and giving you the ability to connect systems, integrate your software systems, your factory software systems with our data sets and, and provide better planning, better control over your cargo as it moves from factory now all the way to customers' doors. We bought Shopify Logistics earlier this year so we can fulfill packages to people's doors or into retail store. So that's, that's what pe brings people in. But yeah, it's the people that, that the reason that they stay and, that, and that's driven by our culture. I would say that's like the foundational competitive advantage for Flexboard is the, the culture that we built. And we have a big advantage over competition and that we've, and maybe these are related, right? We've kind of like shown that this industry is interesting and attracted people who maybe wouldn't have come into this. And that's part of tech. Like people like to work in technology companies and we empower people, make the jobs more interesting. And so people at Flexport, maybe traditionally if in another alternative timeline might've gone to work at, you know, a consulting firm or investment banking or, or like a Google or something like that. We have a lot of tap, not just the tech talent, but the operations, the salespeople, et cetera. So. Yeah. We talk a lot on this program about like the, the CEO's ability to tell a good story. And, you know, you have to tell a story to your investors. You have to tell the story to your shareholders. And like you're pointing out, like you got to tell you, tell a story to talent, to recruit employees. And I'm sure there are many times where you have to sort of tell a story to yourself. How, how has storytelling played a role in your career? And do you have any insights on how to get better at it as a CEO and a founder? Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, you end up telling the story. If you don't like, you know, telling stories like you're, you shouldn't find a company because you have to do this, the, the same, and it's relatively the same pitch, maybe slightly different, but you're pitching the investors, the customers, the employees, you know, in our case, uh, also the vendors, we've got to convince ocean carriers, airlines, warehouses, trucking companies to come and partner with us. We've got to convince regulators that we're not wild cards. This is not like, oh, we're just, there, there's, you know, for, in our case, like obviously it's heavily regulated industry. We're crossing borders and we got to show these regulators that we're dead serious about compliance and that actually tech gives us the opportunity to be better at it than anyone else. So that's another part of the story that you have to tell. Um, and tell a story with for the communities where you operate. Like, why should why should you want Flexport in your city? Why is Flexport a, a good actor? So yeah, that's a, that's a huge part of it. How do you, um, probably how to get better is do it over and over again. You know, I remember um, my Y Combinator, not the pitch that you can see on YouTube, but although I was kind of, I was probably kind of nervous in that one, but my demo day pitch 
where I presented to the crowd. I mean, it's pretty high stakes, right? Like I got to raise money and there's all these people out there. I was very nervous and I'm not very good at um, memorizing things. I'm actually just terrible. I can't. And the demo day pitch, you get like two minutes. It is like super tough for me because in a two minute pitch, like you got to be pretty scripted and demo. I don't know. I'm, and but I just remember how bad I was. And now, like, I don't know, I've gotten done it thousands of 10. I've probably done the Flexport pitch like 20,000 times. So, uh, you know, it gets more interesting. Have fun with it. Um, try to make it relatable. You want to start every presentation you do probably with a story, like make it personal, personable, and kind of finish it with make something actionable. Like, how can you use this in your life uh, in an ideal world? What was your customer acquisition strategy way back in the early days when you didn't have this massive brand that you could rely on? Yeah, well, you know what? It, um, it still hasn't changed that much. I think in the very, very early days, it was Google AdWords, uh, people searching for customs broker, et cetera. We still, we're still pretty active spender on Google AdWords and other kind of social type um, digital ads. Um, but that's not, that's not really the driver over the, the driver of our growth has been really outbound marketing. We're pretty good at identifying importers and exporters. I haven't looked at the stat exactly, but it's in the probably 85, 90% of our sales is outbound, meaning we're calling on customers. And, and that's a very tough thing to do because every other freight forwarder is out here calling all day too. And these, these customers don't really want another freight forwarder in the mix. Like they'll tell you that, but, um, but we've managed to stand out enough with our tech, with our storytelling, with a, you know, showing you how we can solve a problem that once we get people to do a demo, um, it's a demo of the software. It, it tends to be like that, actually, you know, we, we'll go in and they're like, really don't want to be here until the software comes up. And then they're like, Oh wait, this is like, and they'll go grab Patty from accounting and be like, look, you can pay your bills like right here without having to email me. You know, it's kind of hitting the pavement. We, we, we're a little bit more, we're certainly more famous than we were when we started. And that helps. Um, you know, there's a, uh, there's a famous neuroscience paper about the Halle Berry neuron. <laughs> I've not heard uh, of this. And I, I, I use this with our marketing team. Yeah, it's a famous paper in neuroscience that apparently all of us have neuro, a specific neuron for Halle Berry. Um, and whenever you, whether you see her name in writing, see her picture, whatever, that neuron will fire. <laughs> we have one for every human. You have one for your yeah, grandmother, yeah, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. But the, the neuroscience paper is the Halle Berry neuron. And so you want to create kind of Flexport neurons that are active and they don't really, they've, they've heard of you. But then when that email comes in, it's like it, there's a sense of familiarity that neuron is firing. Um, and so that's maybe where the brand helps a little bit. But it's not like people hear, I don't think people necessarily see us in the news and like call us, but it makes them more likely to take the call when we, when we, uh, when we reach out. Yeah. So things were going super, super well, 2021, 2022. And last year you actually stepped down as CEO. Why did you decide to leave when things were already going so well? Yeah. Well, to be clear, I never left. I became the executive chairman and kind of stepped up rather than stepped out. Yeah. Um, stepped it's up. Fine, okay. it's fine. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think, um, I really wanted Flexport well, there was a couple of things. One is actually the pandemic was pretty hard on us. Um, our operations like is hard. Like our our net promoter score before before the pandemic was in the mid seventies, came way down. And not just Flexport, the whole industry. Like you know the, those ships that were stuck off the coast of Long Beach and the transit time to deliver freight from China to the U.S. was like one hundred and twenty days on average across the industry. And like by the way, the ship only takes fourteen days to cross the ocean, so it's pretty abysmal. Um, the price of freight went to $20,000. There were all these challenges in the operations of the company. And I felt like so a lot of that's industry-wide. 
you know, the whole industry suffered. It's certainly not unique in that. But some of it felt like, man, how are we going to drive operational improvement here? We've got to get better. Uh, I wanted us to go faster on tech. We're, we're like, for sure, the leader in technology and global freight forwarding. But like, that's not the bar that we want to clear. Um, I want to be compared to Amazon or Google or the best tech companies in the world. So I felt like I wanted a partner to help me with that. And I got introduced to Dave and he's, um, he's a, you know, an outstanding leader built Amazon supply chain team. It just seemed like a match made in heaven to go, Hey, we can go faster and be better at this. So it wasn't, it wasn't so much that like I wanted to step out. I love being the CEO of Flexport. And then you decided to come back. Why? We weren't growing enough and not just revenue. And, you know, you can't really grow revenue when you're when the price of your service in the market goes down so much. Um, but we weren't growing volumes enough. And as we spent more time with, uh, was I spent, you know, I was still the executive chairman. So as I spent a lot of time with customers, learned like, hey, like, you know, the, you guys aren't listening to this kind of feedback. You're, we we went away from that squad model that I described earlier and we pursued like task-based efficiency. And we lost a lot of our cultural ethos of like, hey, let's be really customer-centric and engaged. And it became pretty clear to the board that like, hey, you know, like the growth engine of this company, the thing that drove the growth isn't there right now. And, you know, going through a downturn, it's like much easier to manage. We realized we were going to have to cut some costs. Uh, and it's much easier for a founder to come in and say, hey, we want to revive our culture. We want to revive our customer centricity while cutting costs. Like that's an enormously hard challenge that I have right now because it's, it, you know, genuinely want the number one priority is culture. But like we're very, and as number two is the quality of our operations, and a close third is cost discipline. And it's like, okay, I'm cutting people. We've had to we've had to reduce the size of our technology team quite considerably, while telling the team, hey, culture is the number one thing. Like that's like something that's much easier for a founder to lead a company through. So the board felt like, you know, that I was the best best suited to do that job. So I'm 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 thrilled to be back. Like I genuinely, I I, I starting to say I, I I love business. I'm a fan of business like the way some people are fans of sports. Um, I'm like a fan of like, what's going to happen out here? I hope someday I'm old and incapacitated. I'm still going to be like reading the Wall Street Journal and say, what's going on out there? Um, and uh, we had, I had the best job in the world for that. Like I, we, we serve some of the best companies in the world. We get to not just like see it from the press, but get inside those companies, see how they're run and, and help them with the problem. I'm like a fan, like get in the game somewhat uh, sometimes and help them run a better supply chain. So it's, it's an awesome job. I'm thrilled to be here. We'll be right back. When your work presentations and docs look good, you look good. You can design stunning work presentations, docs, whiteboards, and videos with Canva. You can start with a designer-made template, then use that as a springboard for your design. Add images, graphics, charts, and more from Canva's massive media library. Or get a huge head start with AI-powered Canva presentations and docs. Just describe what you want with a few words, and Canva will generate amazing slides and text in seconds. It's AI that anybody can use, no matter what department you work in or whatever work task you need to get done. Look, we all need to visually communicate at work. Canva makes it easy to get your point across while looking professional. And at the end of it all, that stunning Canva presentation is going to make you look good. Wow any audience and finish your work faster. Start designing today at Canva.com. Design for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. 
because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're back with first-time founders. A recurring theme in these founder interviews has been sacrifice. I think everyone knows you have to make sacrifices to be a founder, but you have to make greater and more sacrifices to be a successful one. And I think usually those sacrifices, at least in my conversations, have come in two forms. One is mental health, and two is personal relationships. And I'm just wondering, in your experience, what steps have you taken, if any, to maintain a healthy, sustainable personal life while at the same time running a multi-billion dollar company? Wow. I uh, haven't. I haven't done that. I'm, I just focus on running the company. You know, I've, I'm very lucky. I, I, I got married uh, four years ago and I have a wonderful wife who's like super supportive and is my my main team. And now I've got two young kids and I spend a lot of time with them. And so that's like everything else has kind of gone by the wayside and focus on my family and, and flex for it. Um, and if you're one of my friends out there, I love you, but I haven't had enough time uh, to hang. <laughs> uh, I make a lot of new friends, you know, the Flexport people are kind of the family now. We spend a lot of time together in the trenches, uh, serving customers, getting out here. And that's that's more than enough for me. I mean, of course, I try to maintain relationships, but everybody everybody knows me knows where I'm focused on right now. Um, I, I do have a support network of like other CEOs and a, a lot of friends, you know, kind of like chat groups and meetup groups and stuff where people going through similar stuff is it's can be hard to find. Um, so I, everyone kind of needs that as a peer group that that's supportive. So I have a couple of different groups like that, that are really helpful for me, but they also know like they're in the trenches serving, building their companies. And so it's not like we hang out all the time, but there's a, we have a little bit of a forum kind of to get together and, and share things uh, and get help. Has there ever been a moment during this journey where you thought that you would fail? I never worried about failure largely because like my whole life's value system is about learning. Start doing, starting a, I didn't start a company to make money. Uh, I started it to, I think it's the best way to learn and solve problems um, and, and learning by solving problems and solving problems by learning. Um, and so that sort of like can't fail when that's your goal is to, to learn. Now, you know, as we've gotten bigger, more people rely on the business. Like we have to build a very financially successful operation but it's kind of like not that freight forwarding is a really profitable industry. Um, and, and Wall Street loves it because it's asset light. It's a, like a highly fragmented, massive market that's highly fragmented where it's not really capital intensive. Uh, you know, because you don't need to own the assets. You're the coordinating layer. Um, and so you can structure that, a business like that. And, and one where the competition is not really strong on technology and where tech can be a big differentiator. So... Um, I don't want to say it's easy, but it's a relatively straightforward path to making a successful business. In some ways, we're our own worst enemies when we're not we're not generating lots of profit. You like look at yourself, you're like, oh, like, come on, like, let's dial in our process on these things. So, yeah, what is what does that feel like? Like, if if, if you know, business is down for you this year in a in a relatively significant way. Does the pressure ever get to you in 
in a significant, meaningful way? The pressure's all, you know, we, of course we want to get profitable. And so we feel that pressure. Uh, and we'll be, we have built our plan to get profitable again by the end of next year to return to profitability in uh, Q4 2024 uh, with no miracles, you know, like lots of hard work and good discipline execution. Um, it's, to me, it feels amazing because you're kind of like, look, we control our destiny. We have plenty of cash, almost a billion dollars of net, over a billion in net cash in the bank. Uh, we're in a really good financial position, largely, by the way, because when times were good, we recognize, hey, capital markets are booming in 2021. Freight markets are booming. Uh, Flexport, let's let have a very popular like name amongst investors. Let's go raise some money and have that fortress balance sheet. That was strategic. That wasn't luck. Like we're like, hey, let's. And by the way, we presented at that time to investors. It was a tough fundraise. The one that we we closed in early 2022 because we presented to investors were like, here's our revenue projection. It's going to go down. And you were already profitable at that point, right? So it's like, why do you, why do you need the money? It was probably the question they're asking as well. We're profitable. We had money in the bank, but we, and we're projecting revenue declines. Like it, literally investors told us that one of the strangest pitches I've ever seen. Like <laughs> you guys are every other pitch, like the money's, the revenue is always going up and you guys are projecting a decline. Um, but we, we knew that, Freight markets would kind of normalize, return to normal, happen faster than we predicted, but we knew that was going to happen. And and two, we knew that having a balance sheet would be allow us to clean up. And like that's kind of played out true with the way we um, were able to acquire the assets of Convoy, like a company that raised $1.1 billion themselves. And we were in a great place to scoop up amazing tech and bring on the core engineering team from Convoy to add to our capabilities. We've been taking market share like crazy. So, but that's a healthy kind of pressure. It's not like, oh, it's, we're caving under the pressure uh, that's put upon us. Yeah, I mean, you're very clearly like, <laughs> I like what you said, you're a fan of business. You're like a student of the game and you're playing in the game. And as you said, like the reason that you started your first business was to learn. And I, I love that for the, from a mental health aspect, because like you said, it sort of lowers the stakes of everything. It's like, well, even if I fail, it's like, well, I learned something and the whole point of this was to learn. Having said that, you've also built an $8 billion company. And one of our goals on this podcast is to just sort of get rid of the taboo around money and for lack of a better buzzword, destigmatize it. So I'd love to know how you think about money. I'd love to know what your personal financial goals are and also how they've developed over time since you started this company. Yeah, well, you know, um, one thing that really helped me to become a, an entrepreneur was that I, I lived in, I've lived, before I turned 25, I lived in like five, five different countries um, and mostly poor countries, uh, El Salvador, Chile, Brazil, and China, plus the US. Um, and that was on purpose. I didn't have any money and I wanted to live somewhere I could live well. Uh, and, and especially my experience living in China where, you know, I had an apartment that was 120 bucks a month for a two bedroom apartment in a nice part of town in like a reasonably modern city called Kunming, which is out by the, always, there's not a lot of foreigners there. Maybe, um, I estimate about a thousand foreigners out of the 4 million <laughs> population. Uh, but I lived well and like I had, I had a great time. I ate well, I had friends, I was learning Chinese. What were you doing there? Why, why were you in China? Uh, I studied Chinese a few hours every day and I um, managed the supply chain, shipping those products back to sell them on the internet and built, you know, built websites and uh, e-com stuff like that. So uh, I had a great like time. And so I've always known like, Hey, worst case scenario, like I'll just, 
I, I'll find a way. Like, I always make money. Now, th those days are long past me. Like, now I don't think about, like, oh, if it all fails, I'll just go back. Like, now I'm like, oh, we're going to, we're never going to fail. Like, it's, we, we feel like we really know what we're doing and how to grow the business. But yes, how do I think about money? Um, I think money is incredibly a beautiful thing. Like, money is great. Anyone who says that, like, oh, money's the root of all evil, like, has no idea what evil is. Um, and and there's real evil in the world, and like it is not money. And money is that money is kind of a scoreboard. Money is a sign that you've where does wealth come from, right? And actually, it's um it's about trade. It's about doing something for someone else that they value more than the money that they give you for it. And where did they get that money? They must have done something for someone else. Now that could be your time, it could be something that you make, you know, something that you bought from someone else and figured out how to get it to the customer, service that you provide. But you don't you don't get money. This is not the Middle Ages. You're not getting money by robbing people. Like I mean, yeah, there's a little bit of that, but mostly you got money by doing something for someone else. And that's that's how civilization advances. That's where that's what's special, that's what's different about humanity from the other species. You know, you get innovation, you get wealth creation, you get ultimately civilization is emerging from that process. Yeah, I mean, in 2022, that's when you raised your Series E and, you know, you, raid, you raised a billion dollars at an $8 billion valuation. And that, to me, felt like sort of the seminal moment for Flexport, partly because it made you one of the most valuable startups in the world. But also, like you're saying, it was sort of this very public validation that people needed you, that like people need tech-enabled logistics companies. Was that sort of a turning point for the company? And was that a sort of like, holy shit, I've made it moment for you and your career? No, I, I don't think so. I think for us, you know, for any, every fundraise is kind of just like another milestone. And and the, certainly the balance sheet is like a big part of a strategy. In fact, that was the we've ra we've raised a billion dollars in 2019 and again, 984 million again in 2022. So we've kind of done it twice. Yeah. I guess it's just the valuation aspect of uh, the valuations. You know, even the the very next day, I gave a speech to my company saying, "Hey, this is not our valuation." Oh wow! Because the way that valuations work is, well, I mean, the, you know, the theory of it, but also the practice is, it's it's a it's it's a um it's a view of the future, and it's kind of like you know, what do they call it? Net present value of the future cash flows from this company, and like so, it's inherently unknowable because it's about the future cash flows, which like, who knows what they are? It's an opinion from a series of investors where they believe, and they don't even believe it's worth 8 billion. They believe there's some probability that in the future, it'll be worth 80 billion <laughs> and some probability it'll be worth 18 and some probability it'll be worth eight and some probability it'll only be worth 800 million. And, and you collapse all those probabilities and, you know, and they determine that you get to an $8 billion valuation. That's, that's, that's how valuations are determined fundamentally. Um, and that's not even to mention the fact that it's preferred stock and there's a liquidation preference and they get paid back first. So th there's a lot of complexity to that. And like our employees, like, you know, naturally people are like, oh, great, my stock is worth this much. And it's easy to get distracted by that. And we, that's why I give that talk every time we raise money is like, this is not our valuation. Our, it's a there's a possibility that we're worth way more than this and a possibility we're worth less. And our job running this business every day is to go increase that probability that we're worth way, way more than this. Like that's the future we want to live in. And so please like, don't get distracted. This is a problem at public companies, right? I think it's crazy that some public companies like put their stock price on display everywhere, but it, it does get kind of distracting. There is a secondary market for Flexport stock. People are always trying to discuss it. And um, it, it's not, it's not, it's mostly our it, like investors buying and selling stock in Flexport, not employees. But, um, but yeah, I think that's, 
it's really you want to keep everybody focused on the job at hand, which is increase the probability of very high future cash flows. And let's go make that make that the case. So, yeah, the, the, I wouldn't call it a, a landmark milestone for us in any, by any means. It's really interesting, this idea of getting distracted by valuations and getting distracted by how other people's opinions of you, that $8 billion number is someone else's opinion of your company. Have you ever personally gotten distracted by other people's opinions of you? I mean, you were big cover of Forbes, which must have done a huge number on your ego. Like, how have you maintained composure and not sort of gotten ahead of yourself and gotten, I guess, bought into other people's hype of you and bought into your own hype? I'm definitely a human being, so I have an ego and I'm subject to all of that, that you know, that downside of, <laughs> of humanity. Um, so yeah, I definitely have. I, I, I'm a little embarrassed, you know, I'm a little embarrassed sometimes, like, oh, cover up Forbes, so it's like, it's like not like, I mean, we we have like the, someone on our team like put it in the lobby of the office when you walk in and I was like, oh, it's a little <laughs> embarrassing. I don't want to be out here like showing off, right? Um, but it's kind of nice as well. <laughs> cool. I mean, I went, that month I went, you probably, I posted a video of myself buying a copy of the magazine and the guy didn't recognize me and <laughs> like I'm trying to just That's trolling. So I'm not like I needed to buy a copy. I already <laughs> had copies. I was just trying to have fun. So, uh, yeah. So, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, I'm not trying, I'm not, I'm not out here trying to be famous. Like if it helps Flexport succeed. And I think it does. Like I think it overall, like if I get more famous, it's probably good for the company. So I'm willing, willing to do it for the company, but it's not a goal in and of itself. And it becomes harder actually as a leader of a company, the more you're revered and less, it's like, how do you get truth? You yeah. know, it's really hard for like leaders to live in reality because people want to show only their best side and only like, oh, everything's amazing. And, you know, you read these six page documents and like, man, everything's perfect. You go talk to the customer, you're like, not everything's perfect. What the heck? The documents said everything was perfect. Um, <laughs> so I think, you know, you have to stay grounded. Yeah. Talking to customers a lot really helps. Spending a lot of time with the frontline employees. Um, you know, if you talk to Flexport employees, they'll say like, I'm a regular guy that's out there trying to, you know, live with them and learn from them as much as I'm, uh, I'm trying to tell them what to do. So I, I try to stay grounded for sure. What about within the company? Like something that we always talk about on this podcast is the idea of guardrails. Just as you say that you need people who are willing to disagree with you, who can sort of save you from yourself. Have you built in any sort of in-company guardrails to help you accomplish that as a CEO? One is just try to promote people. Like, I don't want to be surrounded by people who are just always telling me what I want to hear. So I, I like people tell me the, the truth. Uh, and th those are the kind of people that will get ahead at, at Flexport. Um, I, we have uh, a few things that we've done that are like kind of pretty public. Like we have a, a Slack channel. We use Slack as like an internal messaging tool. And we have a Slack channel called Ask Exec Team where anybody can just ask a question and encourage uh, encourage that kind of like openness. Um, we also, I do a weekly town hall. It used to be we also, we, we've done that monthly for a long time, but I've made it weekly since I came back, uh, where there's a, a voting system. Anybody can post a question and we upvote, you know, that I just answer all the questions almost usually I stay all the way until they're all done. I, I try to do that. And like, I also would like to, when people ask really hard questions, even if I hate the question, like I like the question asker. I like people who are courageous <laughs> and, you know, it yeah. takes a lot of courage to like, kind of put the CEO on blast and tell them, you, you know, you disagree with this thing and ask why they did it or something. So that that's kind of a guardrail, I guess. Like mostly I do that because if you don't do it, then like those questions are still going to get asked. 
and the, and they they're going to be answered with no standard of truth by like the the black market of uh rumors and gossip and stuff so i'd rather just put it out there and you know address things head on even if i don't have a great answer or sometimes i agree with them like you know what you're right i did make a mistake or i didn't know about that or something so it's yeah, it's probably a good healthy um aspect of building trust within a culture if you could go back in time to 2013 when you started the company what is one piece of advice that the one piece of advice that you would have given your younger self talk to at least one customer every single day and and make sure you're living in reality with those customers and make sure you always bring a team member so you're getting to know your team much better so you, you know who are the people that are serving these customers and watch the team shine as as you get feedback or you learn from the customer see that they're following up and executing and so you're not only doing a better job engaging with customers and solving their problems but you're identifying who's this who's the up and coming talent at your company so you can promote from within and build you know build that culture of the customer obsession and and leadership development you're now a partner of founders fund and you've figured out exactly what works for you as a founder for this business now you're investing in in other founders what are you looking for in a young founder and what would be your advice to young founders who are listening to this podcast well, first of all, I'm not looking just necessarily for young founders. We we will invest in any any age. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. Got some. Uh, there's some actually a lot age discrimination. No, but I mean, I, I don't even mean that from like a legal compliance standpoint. A lot of times, experience is super valuable. Um, so um, yeah, you know, it's it's kind of it. it well, one we talked about it earlier, storytelling is super important. If you and a lot of people overrate kind of technical aptitude and um, really high great engineers are not as rare as a great idea and as someone who can tell a compelling story about why that idea's time has come and build a team around it and so you'll i think that's something i didn't quite appreciate 15 years ago where i would have thought like technical aptitude is everything and actually it's like hey the ability to attract talent uh to a problem you know have a great idea and, and, and attract talent to it is probably more important but yeah you know what one of the deals that i was i didn't lead this deal by any means but i was part of was the um investment founders fund led in Neuralink was the first deal that that I participated in. That's Elon Musk, like brain computer interface technology. When you see something like that, and that is a power of an idea and a founder who can rally a team and attract talent. And you're just like, you look at that and go, wow. I mean, they're going to be, keep an eye on that company. They're going to be enabling people with spinal cord injuries and other like kind of paraplegics to control computers. That's so powerful. Um, so finding like a real problem, that people, that anyone who listens to that will go, man, I want to go work for this company. I want to go solve these actual problems that exist in the world. That's like, you know, I don't, maybe it's a little cliche, but that's the whole thing. Like, that's what, that's what life is about, right? Solving problems for other people. And that's where you make money. You talk, talking about where does money come from? It's like, well, you solve problems um, that are real problems, not just, oh, I invented this technology now now i deserve to make money like no one you don't no one deserves to make money unless you solve problems for other people 100 percent. well thank you so much ryan peterson is the founder and ceo of flexport a supply chain management and freight forwarding platform he's also a partner at founders fund ryan thanks for coming on this was great my pleasure thank you everybody This episode was produced by Claire Miller and engineered by Benjamin Spencer. Our executive producers are Jason Stavers and Catherine Dillon, and Drew Burrows is our technical director. Thank you for listening to First Time Founders from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Join us on Monday for Prof. G Markets and Wednesday for Office Hours.
Thanks to Canva for their support. You're busy, there's no denying that, and we all wish for just a little more time in the day. So why not let Canva help you get your work done faster and more efficiently? You can get started with their AI-powered presentations. Just describe what you want with a few words, and Canva will generate amazing slides in seconds. It's AI that anybody can use, no matter what department you work in or whatever task you need to get done. Finish your deck faster. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work.